Indeed, we pray God save us. And this Palm Sunday is very fitting. We're entering our final time in Lent season, and we are at Passion Week. This is the week that we have Palm Sunday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, where we remember Jesus crucified, and then there's Easter. What an unusual time. And as I jump right into our message, I don't think there's anybody that I've ever met that enjoyed waiting. Do you enjoy waiting? Waiting for a food, waiting for traffic, waiting to go out, waiting to hug a friend. Some of us are waiting to just get out into the open again and gather with our family. My brother just took his family the other day to see my parents and sent me a photo. They couldn't even hug each other. They kept that distance. And so waiting is not easy. And Alex Stone in New York Times wrote this in 2012. The dominant cost of waiting is an emotional one. Stress, boredom, that nagging sensation that one's life is slipping away. And I think I could relate to that. That as we're waiting in this period of shelter in, we feel like we're wasting our time. But it's true, the best thing we can do right now is just stay at home and minimize our exposure. You know who else knew about waiting? It's Israel. Israel waited 500 years for a Messiah. 500 years. That's almost double the age of this nation that we're in. And no wonder that in today's text, as the children we saw in the video were waving their branches, shouting, Hosanna, God save us, Israel was so excited to see, could this be it? The Messiah has come. They were laying down their clothes. They were waving branches. They were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Now, Jesus came riding on a donkey, a colt, a baby donkey. And so Jesus didn't just pick this arbitrarily. What we see here is Jesus meticulously planned this. Uh, Verse 2 and 3, Jesus says, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Jesus had planned to ride the colt into Jerusalem at Bethpage to make a public declaration. What was that? declaration? All this time for three years of ministry, Jesus told his disciples, don't tell anyone who I am. Don't mention, keep it to yourselves, be quiet. But now it's time to let the world know he is the king of Israel that's coming. And so in 518 BC, Zechariah prophet wrote this, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The king would come to Jerusalem one day riding on a colt, and no one has done that for 500 years. And on Palm Sunday, what we call the triumphal entry, Jesus came into the city riding on a donkey. So this is what we call Palm Sunday. And within four days, the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, would be changed to this. Let him be crucified. The same citizens, not the exact same crowd to be fair, but the sentiment of this city that received Jesus so warmly would change their sentiment to let him be crucified from Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
The question I want to ask is, how did that happen? Within four days, how would a group of people so excitedly welcome this coming king, uh, the deliverer, somebody who would bring them up to four days later, let him be executed? Well, there's a few factors. And the first one, some of us have experience with, politics. The biggest factor in the world at the time were the religious leaders who were not happy that Jesus was calling them out for hypocrisy. The religious leaders were not happy that Jesus was undermining everything they've established, the man-made power that resided. And they were losing followers to Jesus, and they were jealous. And so in Matthew 26, this is what they say later on. Then the chief priests and the elders of people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. The rising tension amongst the powers did not like Jesus coming in, especially as the king. They did not want their kingdom, human kingdom, to be threatened. And so one of the reasons we see was that they swayed the crowd, they swayed the city, and had Jesus falsely tried. There's another reason for this. And the other reason was that something that you and I often do in marriage and relationships, we set up an expectation that can't be met. In other words, the people had a false expectation of Jesus. The crowds wanted a powerful new nation. They wanted a kingdom that would rise up like when King David was alive. They wanted a nation of Israel to rise and to trump and destroy Rome and to take place as a world great power. They wanted Israel restored, and they wanted it now. They were looking for a rescue, not someone who says, I need to go to the cross and die. There's nothing wrong with this dream except God's plan for this triumphal entry was not to establish a nation of Israel. He wanted to establish his kingdom through Israel that would welcome all people and to deliver them from the greatest threat, sin and death. So, do you know how this might look today? It's very familiar to have this expectation that we put on God and God can't meet. It's when we fit God into our mold and our expectation. You know, the God that I dream of, the God that I want, the God that I would follow would do this. It's when we put God into our image rather than live out as his image in this world. We want to stay God. And so the most common way I've heard when I talk to people is they say, I can't follow a God of the Bible. I can't follow your God. Well, why not? There's so many things I disagree with. And so we have a God that will follow only if the Bible and God agrees with my values, my desires, my thoughts. So some of us, we read the Bible and we say, oh, I I can't read that. I disagree with it. And we discount it. We say it's man-made, it's irrelevant, it's, it's ancient. And what if we're the ones that's wrong? We try to fit God into our box, but we're unwilling to become molded by God and to be revealed, to see him as revealed. A New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright wrote this. 
When he studies the Bible, I take it as a method in my biblical studies that if I turn a corner and find myself saying, well, in that case, that verse is wrong, that I must have turned a wrong corner somewhere. But that does not mean that I impose what I think is right onto that bit of the Bible. It means instead that I am forced to live with the text uncomfortably, sometimes literally for years. This is sober autobiography. Until suddenly I come round a different corner and that verse makes a lot of sense. Sense that I wouldn't have God if I had insisted on imposing my initial view on it from day one. But someone said, if there's something in the Bible that I disagree with, I must assume I'm wrong. And so in the worst case, what we see happening is people not only reject the Bible, they say God's incompatible with me, and they reject God. So we see this dynamic throughout history. It's in human nature. And the crowd that welcomed Jesus in four days recognized this is not the king that I want, and they were swayed. But here's the truest reason, the real reason why the crowd turned and condemned Jesus four days later. This was God's plan all along. This was Christ's mission. Palm Sunday launched Passion Week, the week journeying to the cross. And Jesus knew this coming into Jerusalem. If you turn with me to the chapter before today's text, in chapter 20, just before it, this is what it says. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. I have a dog that knows that when the bath time comes, he runs away. If I know a pain's coming my way, I'm going the opposite way. It's human nature. And here we see Jesus, nothing is a surprise to him. He knows once he enters Jerusalem, the people will be waving their palm branches, but the plot is unfolding. His death is around the corner. This was not a disappointment. This was his mission. So we could blame the religious leaders. We could blame the fickle crowds. But ultimately, why did this crowd turn? God anticipated it, and it was the plan all along to bring deliverance to us and all humanity from sin and death. So in today's text, we see this two stories going on at the same time, and we're looking in 2,000 years later, the crowd's going, yes, our king is here, and Jesus is going, I'm here, but that's not the plan. Ironically, out of the two groups, who do you think was at most peace? Who do you think had the most joy? It was actually not the crowd waving the branches. This is what it says in Hebrews 12 too. Jesus, who for the joy that was before him, him endured the cross. Now the cross was still painful. It was brutal. He did not enjoy being tortured. But the drive, the mission, the purpose of why he came, the love he has for you and me and for the world, for sinners that rebelled against him, 
was so great, and his obedience to God the Father was so strong. It was a joy. He wasn't looking at the lower story. He was looking at the upper story. And so Jesus saw both the earthly life and the eternal life with God. Jesus obeyed and glorified God, and so it was a joy. It was a peace. Not that it was pleasant, but this was what a faithful servant does. And the crowd could only think about, in contrast, the here and now. I want it. I want it now. Deliver me. God, you work for me. So they weren't looking for a God and king to follow. They were waving branches. Here's the king. But they were waiting for a king who would honor their wishes. Sounds familiar. This is human nature. This is sin. Sin is always this idea that instead of me humbling myself before God, it's making God my genie, making God my servant. And when he doesn't meet it, we are disappointed and we turn. So to be fair, they needed to see the resurrection, which was seven days later. And the reason why we have faith is we have seen the resurrection. The scary part is we're just like the crowd. But we have witnessed something. That God's son died and rose again. Really. The fact that Palm Sunday is juxtaposed with this current crazy pandemic, it's very interesting. Um, the nightmare pandemic right now, it's killing somebody in New York City alone. Every two and a half minutes, somebody is dying right now from the coronavirus. This is a new reality. And the pandemic erupted in America just around the beginning of Lent. And a New York Times reporter, Elizabeth Colbert, wrote this. She noted that the word quarantine comes from the Italian word quaranta, which means 40. It was a practice that's been held up for decades and centuries. When somebody is ill, they were quarantined, quaranta, for 40 days until they could figure out what this disease was. It's interesting because Lent is 40 days. It's when we give up something, when we fast, when we withdraw, when we surrender and seek God. And uh, on a humorous note, Andy Crouch, the editor of Christianity Today and an author, wrote this. Honestly, hadn't planned on giving up quite this much for Lent. <laughs> a lot of us, we surprisingly gave up a lot. And so this Palm Sunday narrative is speaking to us. We can have the crowd's mentality or we can have Christ's mentality. We can think like the crowd and go along the way or we could have the heart and mind of Christ. This is what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Each of you should not look not only to your own interests but to the interests of others. And then he says in verse 5, have that same mind that was in Christ. And so if we can have Christ's heart and mind, we can have something spectacular at this moment. We can have a faith and a hope that extends from this world into the next world as opposed to just seeing the gloom of this world. And I want to share with you a striking, little lengthy illustration. My favorite book these days has been The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. And in chapter 4, he dedicates an entire chapter to how the early church grew from 12 men to a national world religion by 300 years. 
And one of the reasons why Christianity exploded and just caught on was actually epidemics, like the one we're in now. How? Well, around 3rd century, Rome had such a plague that up to 5,000 people were dying a day. They had no idea what to do. And Rodney Starks gives three reasons why Christianity thrived in this, and it's connected to the mind and heart of Christ. Let me share them with you. The first thing he notes is the plague revealed that the pagan gods that the world worshipped and then the Hellenic philosophies that they followed were completely ineffective in explaining why this was happening or giving them comfort to rise above it. They found out that everything they believed in, their faith was shaken. And they realized what we know is those false gods, they can't help because they were not real. And so when the rubber meets the road and the suffering hits their life, they realize that their pagan gods that they worship basically, in their mind, abandoned them or was torturing them. Either way, they were thinking, this is not what I signed up for. In other words, a society was building comfort and security in this world, but they couldn't explain pain and suffering. In contrast, this is what he writes in page 74, Christianity offered a much more satisfactory account of why these terrible ties had fallen upon humanity. And it projected a hopeful, even, get this, enthusiastic portrait of the future. In the midst of a plague, these Christians had an unfailing hope. They had an answer to epidemics. And the answer, one of them was, these are merely schooling and testing. We know that verse in James chapter 1, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. So they realize, wait a minute, what do these Christians have that I don't have? How do they have so much hope and faith? Ronnie Stark notices second thing. When disaster struck, Christians were better able to cope. Why? And they result, this resulted in substantially higher rates of survival. They were able to cope with place because Christians did something that's so foreign to all the people at the time. You get ready for this. They cared for one another. They served and nursed one another. This is how the society 2,000 years ago lived. Let me read you one paragraph. At the first onset of the disease, the pagans, the citizens, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, their mom, their dad, their children. They just dumped them, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. The practice was, you got the disease? Get out of my house. And they just fled. There was no idea of, we need to care for her. We need to, we need to help grandma. The wealthy, the pagan priests, and the powerful all ran to the hills and left the city to die until this plague ended so they could come back. And here we have Christians going around pulling people, pulling corpses off the street, having a burial without sparing any expenses, quote-unquote, 
nursing one another. And so even though they didn't have a cure for the pandemic, the fact that they nursed one another with food and water gave them double the chance of survival. It was their kindness. These Christians lived in a different way. And so everybody saw these Christians and said, what is it they have? Why Why are they so kind? And it got so out of hand to the Romans that they said, hey, um, we got to be like the Christians. Everyone starts showing benevolence to one another. But it was obviously artificial. There's a third way, reason why Rodney Stark says Christianity thrived. And it's because so many people were dying in large numbers that many lost the attachments to one another who kept them from becoming Christians. Maybe they had parents who said, you will never be a Christian. Those Christians are whack. We're going to be doing what we have been doing. We're going to worship our pagan gods like your grandma. And when the Christians were led and driven by a resurrection, an event that Jesus was really God, and they were just going out there, people started realizing once their loved ones started dying and so many people perished, let me explore this truth. Is Jesus real? And so these Christians shared a faith that was so strange. They believed that the Christian God loves humanity so much, therefore, humans must demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one another. Let me read that again. The Christian God loves humanity so much and demonstrates that love through sacrifice, therefore, humans must demonstrate their love through sacrifice on behalf of one. They believed that. This was a foreign concept. So moreover, such responsibilities were to be extended beyond the bonds of family and tribe. Indeed, all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, these were revolutionary ideas. In other words, they were willing to lay down their life so that the other person may live because that's exactly what God did for them. So they thrived. I want to ask you, when you watch the news this week, Did you catch the highlights, the good things that are happening? There are so many good things happening. Who are we hailing as heroes these days? Nurses. Why? Without the proper PPE, they're going in wearing garbage bags, whatever they can, because people are hurting. And nurses know it's dreadful. They're crying. They're they're scared. We need to pray for them. Doctors. But they're going in, risking their life to serve them. Why do we hail that as heroes? That is the very nature of Christ. Doctors, truck drivers, first responders. We have a lot of heroes. Whenever people are willing to lay down their life, we see not Christians. We see Christ. I want to go back to verse 1 and kind of wrap it up with this. Uh, Haley Lee, who read the scripture, she nailed the pronunciation of Bethphage. It's Bethphage, Bethphage, Bethphage. Greek is probably close to Bethphage. This city was very significant, and I'll share with you why. In that city was actually the location of what's equivalent to the Jerusalem Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin. It was where they sat, right outside the city. And for Jesus to go into, of all gates, Bethphage, was to declare, I am ready 
for whatever judgment you have. He was willing to come in on a colt to declare boldly, I am the king of Israel. You may not like it, but I am the king, the true God. And he went in there not to live, but to give up his life so that we can live. This city was no trivial information. Jesus came in without expecting to leave alive. So I want to end with you. What kind of hope do you have? Because for the church, I want to challenge you to say, readjust your faith and your hope so that you can live now in such a way that we become the salt and light. That throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, this is the moment that people didn't squeak away in fear, but they rose up because a God who loves them calls them to love others. And for the Christian church, we have a hope. He is Christ. Whether the virus comes and goes away, we're going to pray for that. We're going to pray for this virus to end, and we will fast and pray, but we will also step up and serve and pray for one another, pray for the nurses, to check in on one another, to even at the moments that we're needed to step out. But for those of you who may not know Christ, I want to ask you, in whom do you trust? Every quarter has a saying, in God we trust. Why is he trustworthy? Because he's the one that came in on a donkey, went out on a cross, but rose again three days later. And this is how Jesus wraps it up. John 10.10. 10. The thief, virus, Satan, sin, whatever you want to call, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He's talking about you and me, my friends. Jesus Christ gives us a perspective that's not for this kingdom, but it's for God's kingdom that allows us to live in this world and for the next with hope and peace in the midst of suffering. I pray that you have that kind of faith and hope that God is welcoming you, that you would surrender and say, Lord, Jesus, you are my king.